This episode deals with issues that may be difficult or triggering for some listeners. Welcome to Make That Paper, the show where we talk about all the crazy jobs we do to make the cash we need to pursue our artistic dreams. Why don't I have that memorized yet? I don't understand how you could possibly not. And to buy overpriced tickets to the immersive Van Gogh experience popping up soon in a town near you. I saw it. I saw it coming to Montrose. Today, we're (laughs) talking about the mortuary mopping mission or the cosplay (laughs) consideration. And how about that admin assignment? We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. Today, we are talking to a phenomenal writer and visual artist whose work has been featured on This American Life in The Rumpus and has been made into a film that made its international debut at the Palm Springs International Short Fest. Her visual artwork is exciting, moving, and inspiring. And we are so thrilled and fortunate to welcome this incredible artist to the show. So wherever you are, go ahead and give a round of applause for Gloria Harrison. Yes. So I'm going to make my mom list of that. Look, mom, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> we do this for the moms. And 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 two for your mom. Listen, I've been begging this lady for two years. Come on the show. Come on the show. So I'm so excited you're here. Can you tell us your mom's name just so we can like just talk directly to her throughout the episode? Oh my God. Her name is Risa. R-E-S-A. Okay, Risa, Risa this one's for you. <laughs> She's going to be so happy. I should have asked oh your God. pronouns. I don't know your pronouns. She wrote it in her email. She's she, her. Oh, good. Okay. I'm, yeah, I, I sign off that way. Yeah, right. Every single email I send because I want to normalize it because I yeah, have same. a non-binary child. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I try. I'm, I'm not as good at it as I as I would like to be. Let me say that. And sometimes I take it for granted, like. If, especially if I've known a person and, and referred to them as she, her, lady, woman, girl, whatever. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm part of the problem. Like, I'm at least I'm self-aware at this point that I'm a problem. So I'm going to try better. Well, I teach um, in one of the many jobs that I have. Uh, my, As I wrote in my letter to you when I sent, my, I sent you my entire resume, yes. um, my actual jobs are the ones that I do the volunteer work for because those yeah. are where my passions lie. And so I teach women's strength, um, which I'm not going to tell you which organization I work through because I'm probably going to say things that would make them not like me mentioning them during this interview, <laughs> okay. inevitably. But, um, but I teach self-defense to women and <clears throat> we are not supposed to, hey guys, you know how it's really easy to go, mm-hmm. hey guys, and we're of the same dude generation, like everything yeah. is dude, you bump into a chair and you're like, dude. So yeah. we have to erase gendered language mm-hmm. from our um, instruction. And so I've gone with mortals. Oh, mortals. I'm gonna write that down. Hey mortals. mortals. Yeah, I like Cause that. Cause that's almost always accurate. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sure there's the occasional deity coming in to learn self-defense. Yeah, well, you I mean you would think so. Who might take take offense? I've been writing humans a lot. Hello, humans to things instead of like gang, because I also am like, I'm oh, not sure. sure gang is appropriate anymore. So it's hello, humans. Also, y'all. I do y'all a lot too, like mm-hmm. y'all on Twitter, especially because you're limited in characters. That's right. Which well, you are not limited in character, but <laughs> <laughs> but twitter does minimize overflowing me. with character um speaking of characters i want to talk to her for a second about a character she did 
Do? for cosplay. Oh, yes. <laughs> because I, in the same year, in 1993, <laughs> you played Wendy at the opening of a Wendy's. I played a crash test dummy. Hold on, hold on. Not just, oh, well, yes, you did, but not just at, a, at any Wendy's, a specific Wendy's in a very specific locale. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. In Roswell, New Mexico. Which is right. amazing. Right. And it was a really big deal because it was the very first Wendy's. And I think they had like Arby's and McDonald's, but like Wendy's came to town. This is like big city shit. And I got the yarn wig and I got the bloomer outfit. I want all of that. Was Dave Thomas there? See, this is the joke, right? Jason, you, you, you've, you've nailed it because this, these were the types of jokes I got. So it was three months. I'm wearing this whole outfit and people made those jokes. Hey, Wendy, like all of that was fine, but the TV weatherman came in and, you know, I'm walking around and I'm used to it. Hey, Wendy. Yeah, whatever. Hey, Hey, Rod, I know your name too, because you're on TV. (laughs) And he's sitting there with a colleague and he says, Hey, Wendy. And bear in mind, I'm like, 16 15 or 16 years old he's like hey wendy what would your dad dave do if he found out you were dating ronald mcdonald and i looked at him and i said he'd probably grimace (laughs) (laughs) and to this day yeah i know to this day i'm like that was probably the funniest thing i've ever said oh my god (laughs) anytime the 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 weatherman tries to make you the joke I have to tell you, the actor who plays you in the short film, who's in Yellow Jackets and um, Santa Clarita Diet, they, that sounds like a joke they would make. Like, I want to see them play Wendy <laughs> and make that joke. Like, nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. They, are. You, they nailed it. Yeah. Well, and I got a laugh. I mean, there was also obnoxious people, right? I mean, it's Roswell in the 90s, you know, like Anita Hill, who is my feminist icon, because she is the one that taught me to say, maybe don't say that to me. But it was around that time. But, you know, not everybody had gotten the memo yet. And I'm like on my hands and knees, like scrubbing something up. And some guys like, hey, while you're down there, I'm 15. Right. So what is wrong with people? Um, do we have time? Do we have to, time? Yeah. We had this conversation right before we, we actually came on and Jason was challenging a couple of things I said. And I was like, listen, I'm saying all this stuff because young girls are being indoctrinated into the sex working lifestyle that they shouldn't be like, they should just be allowed to be humans. Anyways. There's a cut. reason I teach self-defense to women. Yes. Yeah. I can't even, I have, I worked at McDonald's when I was 15 and, um, I can't even, I, I can't even remember the way pe- men would, grown men would come in and hit on all of these young people right. working. And uh, some of it, like I've blacked out. Like I, I literally don't remember. People will be like, well, Jamie, you were young and blonde and pretty. So you know what it's like to be a blonde. And I'm like, no, I don't. Cause I've actually blocked it out. Like I don't know a lot of what was said to me. I don't know. You know, what's interesting about that? And um, interesting to me anyway, (laughs) I have been, okay, so I'm halfway through a memoir that I've been halfway through forever. But the thing about writing a memoir is that the story is always changing, right? Not, Not just moment to moment because you're still living, but also like the perception of the past changes with regularity, right? So what I want to say about what 
I have experienced in this life is constantly in flux, although some things remain sort of static. But um, but I realized that uh, Phil Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael saved my life. Amazing. And the reason I say that is because uh, I had a very dysfunctional and extraordinarily violent, horrible, horrifying upbringing. And so I, uh, but also like we were young and I say we, because I know we're the same age at the same time that like MTV was emerging. And at the same time that like pop psychology was emerging. And so I threw myself into media in a way that the boomers before me really couldn't, even though like they were the first TV generation. And um, so as viewership really increased and the TV was in everybody's home and, you know, people realized how to make money off of sensationalizing, you know, ideas, Phil Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael were coming up and they were having people on to talk about things like gender and sex. And, and um, I just remember really clearly and Oprah started around the same time, right? Yeah. So we had this yeah. really kind of amazing, we were at the head of the tide as, um, as some of these national conversations that are just like in the water now, yeah, started emerging. And I just remember there were several, there was like a moment in time when people were talking about repressed memories. Mm-hmm. So think, think Fawn Hall, um, who was it? Uh, Jim Baker sexually assaulted some, was that, if that wasn't Fawn Hall, that was someone else. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm bad with names. Madam, whatever your name is, I should remember uh, Jessica something anyway. Um, so, but these women were talking about how, like, they didn't say no, because they blacked out and they were repressing memories. I mean, like, I have very, and I'm like seven or eight or nine, but I'm simultaneously watching this horror in my own life, right? Yeah. And my mom, okay, so I'm just going to say this, and I have permission to talk about it because it's in my memoir, but the big secret is, well, I'm not going to reveal it this way, but what I'm going to say is that my mom was allowing all of these things into my young life and into her life and one very abusive man after another, because there was like some secret that some like thing, right? We didn't talk about the thing and I didn't know what the thing was, but whatever the thing was, it was big enough that it like justified these things in my life. And, um, and she she couldn't remember and she couldn't talk about it. And so then all of these conversations about repressed memories that were going on in pop culture, I was like, well, my way of being a good mom, eight-year-old, when I'm a grown-up, is to never repress anything. Yeah. And so I made this weirdly conscious decision at a super incredibly young age to just detail every single thing that ever happened, which, you know, now I can't let shit go, but (laughs) (laughs) so, so the big, I mean, so then, you know, the big dark secret is that my, my mom, um, my, my, okay. So my grandma which is my grandsons. I have two grandsons. They're um, 12 and 10. Their great, great grandma is 85. So she had nine kids by the time she was 27. Oh my gosh. And then my mom had 
two kids by the time she was 18. And then I had my daughter when I was 16. And my daughter had her first child when she was 17. So there's this many intergenerational, you know, like intergenerational trauma, which I think is built on repressed memories, to be honest with you. And so um, um, my grandma's second husband, and she's in her mid-20s, right? He was a state trooper. And he was um, having sex with all the little girls, um, my mom and her sisters. And they were oh like my eight. God. And they, he was making her and her um, brothers have sex in front of him. So this was the big oh secret, gosh. right? I know. So you might want to put a trigger warning at the head of this episode if you're going to leave this in. Yep. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm going to say about that is that I was in my 40s by the time the words were said. It's crazy. And and there has never been a time in my life, because I have plenty of my own words, right? Yeah. So there has never been a time in my life where I didn't know the words. Yeah. If that makes any sense at all. It does. And I, and I, I mean, it's, it's um, tangential. I think Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and, and Phil Donahue. Yeah, sure. I well, I I think that our parents in the eighties when we were seven, eight, um, did not censor television. Like you just watched whatever was on. There was no like rated R TV, TV MA, mature audience only. Like no, uh, you just plop you plopped in front of it, and that was it. What was on was on, and at four o'clock in the afternoons, at least Eastern time, it was Sally, Phil, Oprah. Um, later right. on, it was Ricky Lake, and she talked a lot about trauma. Um, she did, but then it became more sensationalized. I more feel sensationalized like I feel like Phil Donahue. Yeah. yeah, I feel like Phil Donahue was a little more like pure journalism. Yeah. So it, it like hovered the line between pop culture and actual investigatory journalism. Yeah, you know, and and like who would expect that that's what their seven year old is watching? But <laughs> no, they. I mean, even if they did, it's because they were listening and they were like, oh, well, some of this is going to go over their heads. But it's like, no, it didn't. It stayed with us. And this is why Gloria writes memoir, Um, which which is true, which is true. But I will say that uh, there's this idea that I don't think it's new, but it's more um, talked about now where we suffer from the, so we carry on the pain, generational pain. So like generational trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever happened to my grandmother, I'm carrying that even if I don't know specifically what happened to her like it gets passed to my mom who passes it to us and like we just keep living it yeah oh yeah there's like epidemiological trauma so like it actually rearranges dna there's actually emerging science that's completely and totally fascinating Mm -hmm. um, that talks exactly about this when you have a traumatic experience it actually changes your chromosomal structure or something please science people if you're listening to this and i've gotten it wrong give me a little bit of latitude i'm not (laughs) (laughs) but comment in the show notes and we'll move on (laughs) yeah 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 Do we have any uh, commercials today? Let's take a quick break and see. And now back to the podcast. But I mean, that's, it's at least in the realm of accurate. Yeah. And then that's passed up because they did a study in rats. Yeah. Where like a rat had a traumatizing experience and became afraid of a thing. Mm -hmm. And then the rat's grand baby was also afraid of that thing, having never encountered it. Yeah. Right. 
It's wild, right? It's where instinct grows out of. But it's also why I I believe that we should be doing human testing. I think people should volunteer instead of the rats. Like, let's have human test. That could be a side hustle. What There's are you talking about? Sure. Yeah. I'm bringing that. it back. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, people do it. Yeah. I'm, bring, I'm bringing it back. Okay. Like, <laughs> you guys like <laughs> I just reached into the, the abyss for coming. Okay, this is actually bringing it back. You cleaned funeral homes. <laughs> Speaking of trauma. Speaking of trauma. This is, this is again, here we go. Gloria's life. You cleaned funeral homes. Let's tell the people what happened when you were cleaning funeral homes. Oh, my God. And another God. young age. And how'd you get it? How, tell us how you got into that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So um, I want to preface this with I was raised by teenagers. Okay. <laughs> raised by teenagers. So these are not fully grown people with developed frontal lobes, but um, I was 14 and living living in a funeral home in Oklahoma. My stepdad was a mortician. Uh, my family lived in a, a an apartment above the hearse garage, uh, which was in the parking lot of the funeral home. So it wasn't oh like a, it wasn't above the funeral home itself, but it was it was like an outbuilding. I'm hearing okay. six feet under. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have had people tell me this for, for many years. Um, it's where I learned about Harold and Maude and it became my favorite, favorite movie. But um, I uh, got a gig, I don't know, it was like three or four bucks an hour or something, or maybe like $5 a night or some like cheap rate for the late 80s, early 90s, uh, cleaning the staterooms. And, you know, the staterooms are where people lay in state, uh, which is, you know, the embalmed bodies are Mm -hmm. in a casket and people can go in over the course of several days uh, and look at their loved ones or whatever. So sometimes the staterooms had people in them or, and sometimes they didn't. And if you've ever had the joy of being in a funeral home, you know that it always smells like pledge. And there's a reason why it's because they keep it very, very clean. And so my job was to go in with pledge and a, you know, rag and and clean the the uh, wood, including the caskets in the stateroom. And sometimes there were bodies, but you know, whatever. I was I was making I was making moolah. You're making yeah. like five dollars. Yeah, I was five dollars right here, man. Um, but my stepdad, who was a juvenile asshole, <laughs> okay. um, he uh, would sneak in and disable the alarm. Eventually, I would be like oh, this dude's going to jump out from around a corner. But it took me a while to realize that because what he would do is disable the alarm and then hide around a corner. And then as I, it was only when I was coming out of rooms that had bodies in them, I would come out of the room. And as I stepped out of the door, he would jump out and yell, boo. Oh my God. <laughs> my so, dad used to do that though. Not in a funeral home, but my dad would do that too. I was like, where'd he get the dead bodies? (laughs) (laughs) We don't don't talk about Bruno. Um, (laughs) But like, I would remember when horror shows, horror movies would be coming out and they would play the trailers on regular television in between Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Like, and it would be like basically the whole movie in a trailer. And you were like, oh my God, Freddy Krueger's going to kill me when I'm dreaming. And I was terrified. I'd stay up and sweat through the night. And my dad knew I was terrified. So he would like come from the basement stairs and grab you. And you were like, I'm going to die. You know, like, why do dads think that's funny? It's not just dads. Why do people think that 
causing your fight or flight response to kick in is funny. And, and that? B, I am now trained in self-defense. And if I accidentally beat the crap out of you, it's your fault. <laughs> it's yeah. your fault. It's, well, it's the price of admission. Yeah. <laughs> Look how funny it is now. Yeah. What I think is so great about you is that, you know, I think this conversation is all about what makes you such a, a fascinating artist to watch, both your visual art and your writing, like reading what you write is, is so detailed in a way that I think um, is missing sometimes in a lot of things I read, basically, but it really, you really cement like what it was like to grow up one, not only through these horrors, but two, in the 90s, you know, mm -hmm. you're very, you bring in very relevant references that a lot of people don't do. I, one piece that sticks out is talk, your reading of, I think it was Stephen King, but um, yes, uh, I loved that piece because it was so like, it just brought me right into that world and remembering what it was like in the 90s. And, you know, I know a lot of people talk about V.C. Andrews, but I think Stephen King was the one, I mean, I think it's, what was it, Flowers in the Attic? Flowers in the Attic is V.C. Andrews, and it's a yeah. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah, and it was like, I'm not sure, I, I mean, I just think the 90s was just such a, such a, a time where we were reading about horrible things you know stand by me was like well it's like a lot of kids in it like let's I don't know and your reading just brings all of that to, I mean your writing just brings all of that to it which I think also makes you um it's incredible to me all these jobs that you do because you do real jobs you don't write full-time you don't do art full-time you do real jobs in corporate uh, we're throwing some air quotes up around the word real <laughs> She does day jobs and like, day jobs. but she does jobs that people make careers out of. Like yeah. she is very, um, has a very impressive resume. Y'all, I read it. Mm -hmm. I read it. Oh, yeah. She sent us her actual resume. Normally <laughs> we ask folks to send us a list of their jobs, but she's like, I'm just going to send you my resume. I felt very unqualified to read history. it. Yeah, I know. It's like, I, I mean, Shit. Now well, we I, re to... I rewrote the intro though. <laughs> you did rewrite <laughs> the intro, which we appreciated because um, that was great. Um, and Jason was watching the Reno 911 clip you said. Oh my God, had you ever seen that before? Well, we watched Reno 911, but no, we have not seen that. That shit is so funny. Sometimes I walk in and I'm like, you are a sore on my taint, but I just think it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, cause I had a corporate job and it was slowly killing me. Like I worked the corporate job while I was auditioning, while I was writing, while I was filming stuff um, for almost 10 years. And these were nice people for the most part. I mean, misogynistic. Sure. Absolutely patriarchy yep anything go wrong scapegoat me why not because i'm not yeah. an mba I, okay fuck you not allowed it, to have actual emotions this is one of the things that really gets me about these corporate jobs is gloria sitting in a meeting taking Ugh. diligent notes in the meeting but also oh. doodling in the margin of her notepad and she receives a what a what text happened? from the person running the powerpoint presentation saying please stop drawing and then she turned me in to my boss, who I've never met because she lives on the East Coast. I don't actually work, physically work with any of my colleagues. This was a person who came out to do this presentation for the client. And I, and I go to the client's site. So I work with the client. I don't work with my colleagues. And um, 
I had to do like an ADA thing where I'm like, I have ADHD and this is one of my like coping mechanisms. I actually can like, you know, pay attention better, but like that part didn't get conveyed to my boss. And so I had to do this whole like work plan and I had to go through customer service training. And I'm like, I'm 45 years old. I know how to, anyway. And, and also PS, the client, like my client contact was next to me in the meeting, also doodling. Also doodling, probably thought your doodles were hilarious. But to to Jason's point, should you be texting in the middle of your presentation as the presenter? That too. Also like, okay, Hermione. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Are you jealous of my skill at the art doodle? There's no, there's no breadth of character allowed. It's true. It's true. I will say it's true. I mean, I had a dress code when I worked in retail, we had a dress code and um, that made sense to me. If you worked in certain departments like clothing or shoes, you were expected to wear three pieces. So if you were a man, pants, jacket, button down, whatever. Um, women, it could be a skirt, top, blazer, sweater, whatever, or pants. Did you have to wear pantyhose? Yeah, well, I wore oh tights. God. I wore tights. But when I got to corporate, America. It was the same thing. Women were expected to wear, be told what to wear. And there was like a dress code, what was appropriate and what was inappropriate, like nothing sleeveless. Um, you should be wearing three pieces. So you couldn't wear just a dress. You'd have to have a blazer or a sweater over the dress. You couldn't wear one piece. Like it was very um, foreign to me. I, I, I felt like, oh, what is I'm the word proscriptive? Is that the word I'm looking yes. for? Yes. Yes. It's very alarming. It was alarming to me. Nobody followed it, really. I don't think anybody <laughs> got in trouble. I followed it because I was like, I need this job. I'm an actor. I don't want to, like, I'm one of those people that follows all the rules so that I don't lose out on something that will help me get to the next thing that I want to do, right? So I followed all the rules. But it did make my blood boil when I saw people not following the rules. I was like, did you get in trouble? Did you get written up? No, I have an MBA. And it's like, oh, well, okay, I don't. So I'm going to take a note of that. Go eat a dick. So that's cool. Go eat a dick. Yeah. That's That's my prescription for you. Um, So I have a question, though. Yes. So so I have not had the uh, privilege of working full time in the art world. Yeah. Um, I dream of it. I also wonder if, like, at this age, can I do it? But whatever. but it sounds stifling in its own way. Yeah. You know, like I said, I, I know Liv Hewson. I, I met them when I went to the um, Palm Springs International Short Fest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked them up in LA and we drove to Palm Springs together. And then we went to Joshua Tree and we drove all the way back. And so I got to spend some some time with them and um, they are a lovely, interesting person. But they're also describing the ways that it's stifling. There's mm-hmm. not a dress code, but there's a gender code. There's yeah. a, you know, um, you've seen Amy Schumer's last fuckable day, yep. right? It's like- <laughs> A million times. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's awesome. But it's like, uh, you know, they were talking about how Sally Field was married to Tom Hanks in a movie. And then two years later, she played his mom. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but I'm 45 years old. I am in a polyamorous relationship. I still want to be fuckable. And I mean, I'm just, you know, yeah. that's the other thing too, is I'm also not supposed to talk like at this, you know, like it's, it's a tacky 
yeah. for, for women, middle-aged women to talk. And I'm like, but why though? Cause that's real dumb. Like yeah. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be Tom Hanks as I don't also want to fuck Tom Hanks, but you get the point. Oh, like I, yeah, how I, stifling is it, is it? How do you remain creative? Well, I was 31, no, 29. I was between 29 and 31. Who knows? Age is irrelevant at this point, but I was, and I look young for my age and I, I'm, especially then. And I went in for a role of a 40 year old woman. And she said to me, which was fine for me. I was like, that's fine. You were how old? I was 29. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. But for me, and I was thrilled for like, the opportunity to thrilled for the opportunity. Play anything. Yeah. A little right. offended because I was like, do I look 40 yet? Like it, you, you go through all these scenarios. You don't know what 40 looks like. I'm 29. So I go in and she tells me, Hmm, you're playing it a little young. Try having some lead in your boots. And I was like, what? And she goes, you know, your life, you're 40, you're ending, like you're not 29 anymore, like play it like, you know, it hurts. And I was like, oh my God, but should 40, now having been 40, just a minute ago, I can say 40 doesn't hurt. But moreover, unless you sleep in the wrong way, unless you sleep on a couch, yeah. it's really bad. 40's but, hurt. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Forty doesn't hurt. But my point is the next year I went in to a different casting director and I was going out for a young mom to a woman who was actually 25 playing 18. I mean, she was five years younger than me in real uh -huh. life. And I was uh -huh. going out to play her mom and I got a call back and oh I was like, God. really? I should be going out to the same role she has. Like it's very, it's, it's hard, but on the other side of it, like behind the scenes too, like Jason just finished shooting, um, two episodes but he of a show and the thing is you know most of the time he's you sitting get to in tell his... me what show oh yeah it's called good trouble it's on uh free form yeah um but he just sat in the trailer most of the time and when he's on set when they call it when it's his time on set he's sitting in a chair watching most a of the lot time of waiting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of waiting and then you go up deliver your line and then they let you go and it's like is that acting is that entertainment? Like, what is that? Like, well, is that I saw art? this. I actually was, uh, I am trained to be a COVID compliance officer, which of course the entertainment industry needs right now, because in order mm -hmm. for them to be able to have productions and entertainment broadly, right? So I got yeah. called to do um, a two, three, three day gig as a COVID compliance officer for an advertising campaign for a large national um, ad. And this was just a couple of months ago. Um, I trained when I was unemployed and I actually took three days off work to go and do this awesome. because I'm like, art adjacent? What? Yeah. And so there's- It pays really well. Yeah, it's like $500 a day. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, but it's also like- you're competing against a whole bunch of people who have, they want you to have production experience and whatever. And it's a little bit like credit. You can't have credit unless you get credit, but now I have credit. So that's awesome. Yeah. But um, I was watching and the talent, um, there were, there were two people um, that were hired as the talent and they just sort of like stood around and looked fabulous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like they had to continually look fabulous. There were yes. people with like mirrors or like those sunshades that you put in your like window. <laughs> I'm sure that they're called something and they were, constant, they, were, they were constantly having like adjustments to their skin and whatever. And I'm like, this is, this is, and they made so much more than I did for like two days of mostly having blush put on, yeah. which if you're listening to this people, which I highly doubt, but if you are, I know that you are skilled and talented people, but um, that's what it looked like from my perspective. And I'm like, 
this is art yeah the whole thing with 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 the high pay of actors you know and and it's a reimbursement of, it's a, it's exactly of right. all the 20 years of, you know, what you people, don't get paid for the job you're doing. You're getting paid for the hundreds of jobs you didn't get. Yeah. For all those auditions you drove to that you didn't get paid for, for the callbacks, for the years, you know, and, and it literally like I, Jamie said, I did my, I did a job yesterday, yeah, two days ago. Mm-hmm. That was the first job. That was the first paid acting job in three years. No, a year. No, it's three years. Didn't you work there? I worked at the very, at the onset of, I guess it was two years. Yeah. The onset of COVID before it was, wow. I guess it was here, but we didn't know it was here. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you still have to put on your resume that you're an actor, right? Yeah. So this is why, this is why I'm like, I don't really tell people I'm a writer anymore, even though I write all the time because I'm not publishing, but it's like, are you a writer? If you're not publishing, are you an actor? If you're not. Yes. The answer is yes. yes. The answer is always yes. Sure, but I am not the only one. I'm guessing that has the internal, yeah, absolutely, you know, fight of like, am I really anything? Oh well, I recently my friend said you should, uh, you know, send your proposal for your storytelling class to this organist, this writing institution. And I was like, I know. And I was like, no, I don't have a chance. And the deadline is four hours from now. And um, but I did it anyways. Like I I sat down and I did it anyways. And I said. I don't have a chance because my, I don't have a published book. Like, who am I? Like, people can't, you're not a writer. You shouldn't be teaching it unless I'm starring on a show, first of all. But even though I have 20 years of performance background and, um, you know, and writing and no. And then they, I got it. I know. I saw. Yeah. I'm I so happy for you. I, I'm I'm still stymied by it. And I know it's like a small win, but it's a huge win for me. No, it's not. It's Don't huge... do that to yourself. It's enormous. It's gigantic. For me. Yeah, and I know I just... the publication you're talking about. It's wonderful. It's yeah. awesome. I, I'm so, they sent me the nicest fucking letter. They were like, thank you for your wonderful class proposal. Wonderful. They said Aww. wonderful, which means that they genuinely like what I'm offering and they did their research on me too and that's just like it's you know what the response letters that's an interesting point the response letters are are a thing I got a rejection letter from modern love in the mm-hmm. New York Times and it's still one of the things that I'm most proud of yeah because it was well. written it was written by a human person yeah. that that really like had things to say about my piece and like clearly read it and I was like you know that whole it's just an honor to be recognized it's kind of true it's true (laughs) it's true as an artist it's true let's take a quick break and we're back because um it sort of brings it brings a a point you know this this podcast we we try to focus in on on the jobs people do or have done uh, to support themselves as they pursue their their craft. When did you, when did you identify your you know your goal to be and and uh, to be an artist and to pursue writing and, and and creating art, and and what you know at that point did you did you were you looking at it as a professional career as a um, as as a hobby as, a, as like you know and how did your work life your you know paid work life play into that mm-hmm. okay so um i just want to point out that you clicked the icon and now all of the pop-up videos are going to uh-huh. happen and Let's, now it's okay. ran- it's ransomware you're gonna have to pay <laughs> to get your files back um so uh, i'll try to be 
I'll try to be both thorough and um, and concise. Sure. Uh, um, uh, so I went, okay, so I have twins and they're gonna be 20 on Valentine's Day. Um, one is non-binary, one is a boy. Um, and I got married in 2001. They were born in 2002. Um, in 2003, I returned to college. I was like 27. And um, I had had a couple years and I knew that I was going to have to return to the workforce. I was just finishing breastfeeding twins. Oh my you God. know, yeah. I was, yeah. <laughs> I can't even. I want a medal and a chest to pin it on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Earned. And, uh, you know, I, I got my degree in English because it was the path of least resistance because what was happening was I was working in administration before I got pregnant. Mm. Um, I got pregnant on my honeymoon. And um, sign of a good time. Unexpectedly. And, um, so then I was like, I have to, I mean, you know, the cost of daycare, yeah. the answer, Jason is daycare, yes. but the longer answer is, um, so I got my degree in English and I was taking a bunch of women's studies classes simultaneously, um, because there was like dual credit, right? So like I would get women's studies credit and English credit. And at a certain point I was like, should I major in women's studies? Like, you know, they're, they're converged paths at this point, but it, um, my ex-husband convinced me to stick with writing or with English. And so I got a writing minor and mm -hmm. I was working with the publishing program at Portland state university. It's called Ooligan press. And it's the only independently owned, um, university-based publishing house, something, something, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, it's amazing. And I took an editing class and I met some people, but so simultaneous to trying to get some writing credentials, uh, because I, I figured that would only bolster my ability to get paid more in administration, because the thing was, I'd hit a ceiling. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't get better administration jobs unless I had a bachelor's degree, any bachelor's degree, yeah. just pick one. So um, that was my original goal was to be able to get a better job so I could afford daycare so that I could leave my kids to go work to, um, you know, be capitalism's hooker. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I started taking memoir writing in these women's studies classes that were writing credits and English credits. And I was like, I think I'm good at this. I'm like, I definitely have some shit to say. And people were responding really well. And I wasn't getting positive reinforcement at home because I was raising twins and my marriage was falling apart. And my, 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 you know, my teenage daughter was starting the you know, where she was either going to get pregnant or um, get addicted to drugs or kill herself. And she ended up doing all three. So, you know, it was like miserable at home. And at school, you know, I graduated when I was 30. I'm getting, I'm finding, literally finding my voice, both my like written voice and also like learning how to speak my mind yeah. and speak up in my marriage. And, you know, it was just um, to say it was transformative is cliche and also an understatement. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> simultaneously, MySpace, do you remember MySpace? Remember MySpace? I, yeah. 
<laughs> it had just hit. And um, my daughter was being like groomed by some older, I don't know who it was, but I was like, the hell even. So I made myself a fake MySpace profile. Um, and uh, uh, my name was Nom de Plume. Love that. Because I'm very clever. <laughs> this is awesome. I couldn't think of a pen name. Um, and I was so trying just to. Wrote pen, pen name. And yeah. I'm surprised that it wasn't already taken. No. Without yeah, you getting in there early. Yeah. I know. I was an early adopter. Um, <clears throat> so I was trying to stalk my daughter. Um, but I had also, I was just about to graduate. And I put like, you know, you could list all of your like interests and hobbies and whatever. And so I would put writer on there. And a man named Brad Listy um, had just released a book called Attention Deficit Disorder, and he um, friended me. And I was like, who the hell are you? And he's like, who the hell are you? He's like, I just, you, you, you say writer. And this turned into the most important thing that's ever happened to me creatively, because Brad hosts a podcast called Other People Pod. Mm -hmm. And he also started the, do you know, Brad? I know that podcast. Yeah, he also started the nervous breakdown, but all of that started mm. with Brad Listy's Dead MySpace blog. And I ended up meeting people that are to this day some of my most beloved people, including Gina Frangello. Mm -hmm. right? um, Kimberly Weatherell is a is a re, uh, audiobook recorder in, in in Manhattan, and she's just one of my most beloved friends. Um, uh, Greg Oliar. Um, I mean, like I could go on and on. I was standing on the shoulder of giants, and I was a fan, and I was reading. And then Brad started the Nervous Breakdown, and then he started blogging on the Nervous Breakdown. So we all sort of like dutifully went over there. And at one point, I said, "Can I contribute?" And Brad's like have at it, have a ball. He gave me a login and that was that. And my second essay that I wrote, cause I was like, I need to up my game, right? Cause I was blogging on MySpace and gaining um, like a following yeah. of people who like would check in to read my blog. Um, and so I was like, this is for real though. These are like people who don't subscribe, right? Yeah. Like they're just, so the second essay I wrote for the nervous breakdown was let's see how fast this baby can go. And I wrote it in 35 minutes, and then it ended up uh, being recorded for This American Life, and it ended up being made into a movie. Still but, one of my favorite reads ever. But when, thank you. But when I wrote it, I was like, I want to impress these people. Mm -hmm. These people that I've been reading all this time that are letting me write with them, I need to bring my best to this game. And I'd already been writing memoir because of school and whatever else. And so um, I sat down and you know, you know, that mo and people who have never experienced this think it's bullshit and some sort of woo woo crazy, like hippy dippy shit. But I know both of you have felt it at least once I can guess this already. But you're sitting there. And then you become embodied by the spirit of something that's not you. And then you do something really, really super creative. And you're like, holy shit, give me more of that. That was a drug. I need it. And you don't even Absolutely. know, like where it came from, or how to get it back. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what entered me and how I produced that essay in 35 minutes. Of course, it was a story I've been waiting to tell for many years. Of course but, it was. but boom, as soon as I landed on writing it in first person, present tense, mm -hmm. it, it, it was it was done. And 
uh, you know, I've only tasted that a few times in my life, but it is the high we seek. It is why we keep doing all of these other jobs to support our art habit, because it is the only thing that living is about, right? Yeah. You you feel it when you your your babies are born and you put them on your chest. You you know, like there are only a few things in life that give you that high. That and it's not even like. I mean, it is drugs. It is a chemical reward. It's literally like you can get into the yeah. neuroscience of it, right? Yeah. But it's also, it feels like I am not religious and it's the closest thing to spiritual. Like divine purpose. Like divinity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think that there's two ways to look at being an artist too. And I, I, I think it, this is a good episode uh, to discuss this on is that there are two forms of art, the art you're talking about and um, where you work to support it because it doesn't when the art is created you can't create it massly enough to always um, be a, a sole income but there's also art where people make it a corporate job which is what hollywood is you know it is um you know the guest stars the co-stars you know where it is a factory of bringing in the cogs in the machine to fill a space and then you go, it's what, you know, commercials are. It's also what, you know, you have 27 books in one series and you produce six of them a year or three of them a year to meet timelines and deadlines and Amazon, you know, needs the market needs, the readers needs, et cetera. You know, so there's a formula that you have for this particular book and you keep bringing that character back and you fit it into this storyline. Um, so, you know, that can, you know, art can be corporatized, but I think that that's it also is, rare. It is well, well. Yeah, I mean, there's a God. We can get so granular and, and and modular about it because there is art, there's entertainment, there's where they intersect. Yeah, you know, there's. Is it still art if you monetize it, right? There's that whole question. Uh -huh. is, like, it, is it art if you made it with the intention of monetizing it? Or that's right. is, it, is it different if you made art and then it gets monetized later? Is 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 Van Gogh as valid as Thomas Kincaid? Mm -hmm. Right. But I think what I was getting at more or less is though that the fact that you had that um, divine feeling that 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 thing that you chase that high every time like you can't stop chasing it with your art that's the thing that I think really defines the artist you know is it's like even if you corporatize or or capitalize any other form just to make your dollar because the one thing that you do that gave you that feeling um I don't know what I'm trying to say no 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 you're right but uh, um and I think you can be an artist and have never felt that. That's true. I think that if you, what, what, you know, somebody, what somebody said, uh, you know, I've read um, On Writing by Stephen King and Bird yeah. by Bird by Anne Lamott, because those are the two like writing Bibles. And yeah. in one of them, they said, if you can do anything, but I think it was Stephen King, if you can do anything besides writing, do it. Why would you, why would you do this? But if you, if you have to do this, here are some helpful tips, right? And that's the thing is if you're an artist, it's because you have to, it's like an illness. It's like IBS yeah. of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, um, but, you know, I, I, I was thinking of uh, uh, something that 
J.K. Rowling said in an interview, and I just want to preface this with, I love the Harry Potter books. I'm sorry that she is a turf and, you know, fuck her for not being who I want her to be in the world. Exactly. Exactly. But, but, but thank you for writing those amazing books, J.K. Rowling. Um, And she said that by the, you know, because she was on a corporate contract, right? And so she said, she said by the like fourth book, she mm-hmm. was writing and she was thinking about crushing her hands with a sledgehammer just because she couldn't imagine having to do this. Like the passion was gone from it. So I yeah. think that there's something about that too, where like you can monetize it, but who, you know, who's in the saddle? Yeah. You've, you've kind of, I mean, they call it selling your soul. Um, and to an extent that's, that is true. You, you, you're giving away the thing that was so personal um, and, and intimate to yourself and, and turning over, if not artistic control of it, um, the, the, the demand for its production, you know, yeah, where and- yeah, it, it originally, you know, when it starts, because we as artists, you know, especially, you know, as an, as an actor, I'm, I'm, I'm a hired gun, right? You know, there's no job, you know, I don't, I don't just go out on, I can't go out on the street and just start acting. I have to, you know, I can, well, I can, you know, and, you know, people frown on it. It freaks them out. Yeah. Uh, Especially here in downtown Montrose, but um, you know, there are many art forms, painting, writing, Mm -hmm. music, um, and so on and so forth. Graphic design. Graphic design. Any any art form where you can just sit down and create something inspired by yourself because you feel the need and there is nothing outside of you telling you to do it. And then you monetize it. And now you've got a deadline for the next one. And you've got notes and you've got outside influence. And it's suddenly you're- But you also know, right, that that there's no soul in the other things that you do to pay your electrical bill. Yeah. And so it's like in line the pockets of someone who already has a lot of money. Yeah. And so it's <laughs> like, okay, if I want to monetize, I think it's a little bit like you don't do the drug you deal. Right. Yeah, like, right. like, like maybe, you know, so this is why that onion article, like do it on evenings and weekends and until you die is funny because I think the, I think it's, it, I think it's how you keep passion. I, I, you know, and the, my day job, I have student loans Yeah, and that's same. the honest truth of it. Yeah. If mm-hmm. I didn't have student loans, I'd live in an RV. I'm not even kidding, you know, and I have student loans because it got me out of my marriage and it got me into a world where I can taste the high of divinity. So it's like, you know, what is the payoff there? Um, But I don't want to do the day jobs that I do and I do them to the best of my ability and I'm, I'm good at them. And, you know, I find the things in them that I love, but um, I make art because I have to. Yeah. Yeah. In a different way than I go to work because I have to. So your blog is privatized and we for don't now. Have, for now, okay. Because I um, I bought my URL back from an ex-boyfriend. Oh. GloriaHarrison.com was like being held hostage, and I finally got it back. So okay. I'm going to be building a website. Great. So will we have photo essays of your work on there too? As your as a visual? I hope artist? so. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Good. You were doing catering or stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, when I was in college and, yeah. you know, parenting and-, and, and That's what and, I'm saying. How are you in college? Do you have a full college load? Because you graduated yeah. in three years, so you had full credits. Oh my God, I graduated 0.2 um, percentage points away from summa cum laude. I graduated Ooh. magna cum laude and I had twins and a daughter and a marriage that was falling apart and a burgeoning alcohol problem. You were my hero. And you were I working. don't know. Yeah, yeah, and I was working. I don't want to go into how terrible my marriage was, but okay. you know. No, we don't have to. We don't sometimes have to. you just like do things to distract yourself mm -hmm. from the horror of the other things. It's so crazy. I feel like I did that in a relationship with a boyfriend that I could just walk away from. And I'm like, why am I, why am I in this relationship? If I'm doing everything I can to avoid this relationship, I should not be in this relationship. I feel like I could get a lot more done if I didn't like you so much. <laughs> oh my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> Quit being adorable, Jamie. I feel that way often about you. So, so goddamn pleasant. <laughs> You're not my real mom. <laughs> This, I feel, is, I feel this like, is parenting advice. It's okay because <laughs> artists are parents too. And it's like, how do you parent when we also that that is a good thing that we can end on is um I think that's interesting too. Like, how do your children feel about do you allow them to read your work? Do you allow them to be a part of it? You know, at what age oh, do you stop allowing that? They don't allow me. Is the interesting part. I have, I mean, they can, they can access anything I have, whatever, but there came a point where they were like, you may not post about me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You may not post photos of me. You may not post things about what I do, which is why I have a new nom de plume, like a, a dummy Facebook profile, because I don't want to be censored by my kids either. And as, <laughs> and as much as their lives are theirs, my life as a parent is mine. And it's a really tricky line, yeah. you know, but the, the second they were like, don't do this, I couldn't be like, it's my body, I do what I want. Um, which is what my daughter used to tell me. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, I bring her up a lot, but actually there were some very funny stories about, about our, our life together. Um, but, but I still have the experience of parenting them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and this is also where I'm at with, with memoir in general. It's like what I, you know, the big, the big reveal about my mom's past, the big secret that like actually led to everything that I am, um, is also my story. Yeah. You know, my daughter died of a heroin overdose in a homeless camp. That's her story, but it's also my story. Absolutely. And so the tricky thing, and I know Gina talked about this a little bit, but the tricky thing about memoir is, I mean, you, you only can speak from your lived experience. I, 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 right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But your lived experience overlaps sometimes and you just have to, you know, own what's yours yeah so I quit publicly posting about my boys I quit blogging and whatever or my kids but um but I still have to talk about it mm -hmm. yeah yeah you're yeah. writing from a place of mothering you know like that 
It is an interesting turn when children stop realizing that what you, who you are for so long was part of what the mother was or the father, the parenting, you know, like you, your life changed so dramatically having changes so dramatically having a child, everything you do takes on new meaning. Every time you work, it takes on, you, you're making choices. Do I go play a board game or do I say, no, I have a due date on this paragraph, you know, like everything it's, so you have to be able to talk about that and how it changed you better or worse so you know it, it's hard because kids become adults and they're like no I didn't get chosen I didn't choose to be birthed by you so you can't talk about me and it's like well well no. I didn't choose you to be birthed I would have chosen <laughs> someone else so, uh, you were um, an accident <laughs> um, we know you have to Gloria has to go do her day job she's yes. out of her day job to sit down with us thank you so much thank I, you for yeah. you know, taking a break thank you both so much thank you, thank you so this much. has been so great have a yeah. great 11 o'clock thank you <laughs> she on I love me some Gloria Harrison agrees now normally we would announce next week's guest but next week we're taking a little break spring break uh-huh. but be sure to join us in two weeks when we will be joined by legendary horror writer Stephen Graham Jones. I am so freaking out about this. She want my money, but I got my money. This ain't no savings and loans.